Hello, my name is Dustin Hosseini, and this is the Digital Education Practices Podcast. Okay, today I'm joined by uh, Sally Keith. Uh, Sally, would you like to tell us about yourself? Yeah, so hi, I'm Sally Keith. I'm a senior lecturer in the Lancaster Environment Centre at Lancaster Uni. I'm an ecologist and I primarily work on coral reef systems, trying to understand why we have more species in one place than another place and also why they are in those um, specific locations. So for instance, why do we have a lot more species around Indonesia than we have in somewhere like Hawaii? Okay, perfect. And what are you going to talk to us about today? So I'm going to talk to you about uh, flipped classrooms and particularly about the online portion of, of that. So creating online resources. And I've been using something called Digital Chalk Talks. Okay, that sounds really interesting. So tell us about it. What What is, what is Digital Chalk Talks? So they are basically something where you start off with a blank screen and you... Um, narrate while you're handwriting or hand drawing something that helps you get across that information. You can put in photos. Um, I think you can put in videos as well, although that's a bit beyond me at the moment. But basically, it's about trying to create a sort of dynamic way of delivery as opposed to just static PowerPoint slides. And, and what was the kind of inspiration for this? So I was developing a new module a couple of years ago on coral reef ecology. And at the same time, I was doing my teaching qualification. So uh, I was doing this thing where I have to do an individual inquiry into the literature. And so it sort of came together at the perfect time that I, I had this extra time to really look into the research behind how to, how to deliver information basically, in a good way. And also to look into what is the best use of our time as lecturers. And the main thing that I came up with was that really uh, the best use of our time is not in just standing in front of a, a group to impart information, but really in helping people achieve those higher level aims. People often talk about it in terms of Bloom's taxonomy, if people are familiar with that, but it's rather than just teaching people how to remember and understand things, we move towards helping people learn to evaluate information, interpret it, and how to create new information and new concepts from what they've learned. And so how did you go about this process? I know that Bloom's taxonomy is, is very well known. There's even the digital Bloom's taxonomy as well. Um, so what did you do in this case? Yeah, so I looked at how do I best deliver this sort of flipped classroom approach, which basically fulfills the criteria I was just talking about. So where the information is delivered online and students can access that in their own time. And then when they're actually in class having contact time with you, that's when you help guide them through developing those higher level skills. And so your sort of physical interaction time with them is all about guiding and, and helping develop higher levels. I wanted to know basically how do I best develop those online portions or those online resources for these flipped classrooms. And to begin with, I guess I thought, well, maybe we can just sort of do lectures and record lectures. But actually, it became quite clear quite quickly that that's not the best way for students to learn online. And I came across a couple of really interesting theories that helped me move towards the idea of digital chalk talks 
being a good way to do it. So the, those theories, if you want me to go into them a little bit now, is that is now the right time? No, that would be perfect because we talk about practices, but in this podcast, but obviously there a lot of them are informed by theory. So please do. Yeah. So so the first theory that I came across that was really useful was the cognitive theory of multimedia learning, and that's by Mayer and Moreno. And they're actually the basis of both of these theories I'm going to talk about. The three main points it makes is that firstly, we have an audio and a visual channel, which is how we process information. And each of those channels are processed separately. So that's the first important point. Second one is that in each of those channels, we have a limited capacity to process information. And thirdly, was that processing is an active thing. So it requires engagement from the learner. So these three things I thought were, were really important. And one thing it highlights is that we can be subject to this thing called cognitive overload. So if we get all our information through just one of those channels, it quite quickly takes up that limited capacity. And that then makes us not really be able to actively engage. And it's really hard to process the information we're given. So one thing we could do is we can split it. Um, so any information we give, we split between an audio channel and a visual channel. And then we sort of have almost like double the processing capacity. And they give these tips for how to help prevent cognitive overload as well, so that we can turn that information into meaningful learning. And I won't go through them all because there's a really nice paper that gives nine different tips. But just to highlight a couple, one is to um, narrate information. So that, like I said, this is sort of what leads me towards doing these digital chalk talks. So if we're narrating something, as we're presenting something visual, then it, it splits it between audio and visual channels. Also, it's really important to do things like weeding. So make sure we don't have anything in there that doesn't have to be in there. So it's tempting sometimes to throw in an extra picture or an extra bit of music or something, because um, especially with online resources, we feel like we need to make something fancy. But actually, that's, that's something we don't want to do because it adds to that potential overload. Um, and another really important one was segmenting, where we want to create sort of small segments of, of chunks of knowledge. So we can do that by creating short videos of maybe sort of five to 10 minutes rather than hour long ones and encourage students to either pause those, those videos as they're ongoing or make sure that they have a little break between watching each one so that they have time to do that active engagement in processing the information. So the second theory is the cognitive effective theory of learning with media. So they've both got quite long names. This one is really about how to encourage connection with people when you're trying to deliver information online, which I'm sure we're all very aware of at the moment can be quite difficult to do. But there's a few little tips that, that get offered through this theory and they're really quite simple to enact actually so things like when we're narrating using words like you i and we to can really help with creating a sort of social engagement between the the teacher and the learner using a conversational tone is also important so if you can avoid just reading um off a script then people pick up on that on that level that sort of tone that you're using um, and feel more like they're in the same room with you and that you're a real human. One that I really liked was um, that it's okay to make mistakes. So 
doing these sort of online resources, especially if you're not used to them, can feel quite daunting. But this is a really nice thing to keep in mind that if you make mistakes, as long as you correct them, what it actually does is shows again that you're a real human and has been shown to increase that level of engagement with the learner. And the last thing that really draws again towards that digital chalk talk format is that animated handwriting also really adds to that level of social engagement with the learner. So there's been studies where they've looked at whether just static typed words that animate onto the screen or handwriting is better. And it seems like the dynamic handwriting really does have a, a big impact. So as I said, that that perfectly fits with this idea of um, digital chalk talks. That sounds really interesting, um, especially because what you're doing is you're linking your practice to the theories and how they can be enacted in effect. Mm, yeah. um, and I know that for people who are listening, you've shared an example, I guess, of uh, how this works in practice, mm-hmm. um, which is similar to... Uh, I guess the Khan Academy type videos, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So um, that was where some of my inspiration came from, actually, in in watching those. Um, I've used them in the past and I've always found them really engaging compared to just looking at PowerPoint presentations. So I wanted to try and uh, create them myself. So in a sense, you were trying to put yourself in the shoes of the, the actual students to yeah. see what might be beneficial or foreign to them. Yeah, exactly. Actually, on that note, how did the students, how have they responded? So I've only run the course for two years. So it will run for the third year this year, which will have extra challenges, which maybe we can talk about in a bit. I found that in the first year, it all seemed to run pretty well. More students than I expected actually showed up to the in-class stuff. So perhaps I should say that the digital chalk talks are the online component, but they still have the same number of contact hours. So when they're coming in to what would normally be a lecture, we're instead doing some kind of exercise that allows them to apply the knowledge that they've just learned in watching the online stuff. And most of them did show up for for that, which is always a, a positive and did really seem to engage actually. And I especially noticed from the beginning of the course to the end of the course, there was a real shift in the amount that the students engaged, not just with me, but with each other in doing all these group learning activities. I did do a, a questionnaire for the students about how they felt afterwards, but as is common with students, didn't get all that much feedback. Um, but what I did get uh, did suggest that the students really enjoyed the digital short talk format. Um and they're third year students, so uh, they've been exposed to lots of uh, different ways of learning so far, I guess mostly fairly passive. So hopefully they, they had a bit of a, an idea what they were um, comparing it against. What I found in the second year that I ran it was that I at least felt that it ran much better, that it was much faster that the students gained confidence in talking to each other and engaged with the exercises. I think, to be honest, a big part of that was my own confidence as a teacher, because the first time you run this kind of thing, you think, oh, not many people are doing it. I'm not quite sure how it's going to go. Whereas the second time I knew that it worked previously. So I was probably coming in with more enthusiasm and they could probably see that I was more confident the second time. So I think it's I think it's been working pretty well. Wait, so are you saying that because you were enthusiastic and they could see that are you saying that perhaps 
that behavior transferred to the students? I think so. I think it. I think sometimes we underestimate maybe our how how much they pick up on how we feel about teaching a particular subject. So I also saw that in the feedback this year, there were a few comments actually of them saying that one of the things they really enjoyed about the course was that I was so enthusiastic about it. Um, and I think that does have a, a strong effect on the students. Okay, good. So because this is kind of a theme that I've been um, talking about throughout my sessions, which is behaviours will kind of develop what kind of behaviors do we want to develop in our students, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of touches a little bit upon that, where your enthusiasm transferred to them and they also suddenly were like, oh, this is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it will be interesting to see how that works going forwards with the move to more online teaching, whether we can still find ways to get across our enthusiasm through online teaching. Now, uh, I think earlier you were going to touch upon maybe the uh, challenges before we talked about what we just spoke about. So what were the challenges around this? So I think in general, the move to flipped classrooms is is seen to have a few barriers for people that teach. It does take a significant time investment to develop online resources and also interactive tasks to do in class. And it also requires a certain familiarity with multimedia for both the teacher and the student. So that was one of the challenges for me that I feel like I'm quite good with technology, not the worst person, but I had to sort of learn to do all this handwriting and drawing stuff whilst recording myself narrating, which sounds fairly easy, but it's quite difficult to draw and talk at the same time. But I think overall, this thing of time investment being a barrier, it could be quite good in the current situation in that it's recognised that everybody's going to have these extra amounts of time that they're going to need to put into developing online resources because that has to be developed at the moment for when the university starts again there's going to be a lot of online teaching so it might actually create the space for people to get over that barrier and not worry about having that extra time investment then because it's recognised that that needs to happen at the moment. I think more broadly, some of the some of the other challenges are also, well, going forwards and classically. So classically in those in-class uh, segments, some of the challenges are things like um, anxiety can be a big one. So obviously some students really hate being put into a group, especially with people they don't really know. Um, and there's benefits to putting them in a group that's not just with their friends every time. So that can create some kind of level of anxiety that I think we need to be quite sensitive to. And it can also affect their learning. So this cognitive affective theory of learning with media, a big part of it is that students have to feel happy and feel confident uh, and be in a low anxiety environment to develop really strong learning. So if we're creating anxiety in them, then that's going to have an effect. So we need to be really mindful of that when we're guiding students through these activities. There's also real issues, I think, with inclusivity. In class, it's not just this anxiety issue, but also things like visual or hearing impairments might cause extra create extra challenges where if we've got fast paced group activities going on, we really need to make sure that everybody in that group is aware that we want people to be speaking one at a time, preferably. We want people to face 
directly the people they're talking to to encourage things like lip reading to be a possibility. So there's lots of things to consider um, that are challenges in this. Sticking with the kind of inclusivity theme that the digital chalk talks also have some issues. So as I was talking about the reduction of cognitive overload being one reason to use those, if you imagine you have somebody who can't hear the narration, uh, then what we need to do is add closed captions, of course, so that that helps boost our inclusivity. But it has a bit of a conflict with the whole cognitive overload because now we're putting everything through their visual channel. So I think we need to be a bit mindful of these kind of potential issues. The, the other challenges I've been thinking about a lot moving forwards are how do we develop these in-class sections for delivering remotely? So a big part of what I do when those are ongoing is to walk around the class and make sure I'm physically interacting with every one of the groups. I can see really clearly which students are maybe not engaging and try to try to help them, try and see if it's some kind of anxiety issue and whether they need encouragement or whether there's a particular concept they don't understand. That's going to be much more difficult to do online. So that's what I'm thinking about at the moment is how to address those kinds of challenges. And just for, I guess educators who might feel that oh if you create these materials it will take away their job it doesn't sound like that at all does it i don't think so i mean i think the thing to keep in mind is that nearly all information is available online these days so the students can find that information but they still choose to come to university to learn and so i think we still have a really strong role in helping helping them to learn to interpret information, particularly in a critical way. And I think that's not only important for people that want careers as scientists in the future, but for everybody to be a good, well-informed citizen of the world that they can hopefully see beyond these things like fake news and stuff like that by by gaining these skills in how to interpret things critically. So I definitely don't think our jobs are at risk by creating online resources. It seems that even though the students may watch these, they'd still need to come into the class and take part and take part in different interactive activities. Yeah, definitely. I think that's where the, the consolidation of the learning happens. Now, this is mainly for year three, right? Yeah, that's right. Have you thought about doing it for year ones or year twos? Yes, I have. I don't um, really teach much first year or second year at the moment. And I think it's important with these that... If you do have this mode of delivery, it's consistent throughout the whole module. And I only sort of dip in and out of other ones. So it would be very strange for me to come in one week saying, okay, watch this video online and then I'm going to do an activity with you where when they're getting all other delivery on that module being the more classic kind of lecture style. So um, I think it would be great if we could do that because there is some suggestion that if students are exposed to this earlier it becomes more normal to them whereas if they've had more passive learning throughout the first and second year then they might be more confused by this kind of flipped approach so I definitely think it would be good to bring it in early. No I totally agree um, the earlier you can I guess introduce students or cohorts even new staff for example to a new university to these ideas then the the more likely they are to engage with it and be comfortable with it. Mm, yeah. I just wanted to ask before we kind of wrap up about the practicalities. Mm-hmm. So how did you do this? So I did it on an iPad. 
with an Apple Pencil uh, using some software called Vittle. And that was it, actually. So <laughs> it's really simple. You basically just captures what you're drawing on a sort of basically like a digital whiteboard. It takes a bit of practice, but I don't think the learning curve is, is that extreme. Obviously, it requires you to have the iPad and the pencil, which is not cheap. There are other ways you can do it, but I think they're not quite as easy. I did explore those, first of all. But once you've got that set up, it, it's easy and, and you only have to learn it once. And then you've got that skill for doing all your lectures in the future, possibly. And it really doesn't matter, I guess, what tools people might use, whether they have Surface Pro or, you know, a, even a graphics tablet. They could still do this, couldn't they? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, whatever works for different people as well, because I think... I personally find it easiest to do do that with the pencil on the iPad, but some people might actually prefer the other kind of tablets that you connect up to your to your PC where you're writing on what's effectively your desk and it's coming up on the screen in front of you. I always found the disconnect of those two really hard to process, but uh, some people find it easier apparently. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think if you're used to using something like AutoCAD where you're probably using a a graphics tablet anyway and you're looking at the screen you might be very used to it as far as the the videos themselves uh so at our university we use moodle where did you put the videos how did you make them accessible to students how did you organize them as well yeah so i i put them onto lancaster e-stream i think e-stream is a generic thing um but we have specific access to that at lancaster and then uh, and then i had to link it from there into the Moodle uh, page for the module. And basically just, uh, I had five chunks of videos uh, or digital chalk talks per equivalent of a lecture. And each one was 10 minutes long. The other thing I did for the second year, because I didn't have time to get around to it the first year, was that I added closed captions uh, and I used YouTube to do that. I think there are there is functionality in Panopto to do that, but I found it it's it, it was just terrible at picking up words, particularly scientific words. Whereas YouTube, I think, uses the whole of um, Google's information to be able to auto caption. So once you've done that on YouTube, you can then just go through and do do little edits. Um, it's quite easy to add those on, uh, and then that also still works through that sort of eStream Moodle connection as well. No, that's very relevant because I know that you're exactly right. From my experience, YouTube as well does do transcriptions pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, I think Microsoft Stream does them also pretty well, mm -hmm. um, but I haven't used eStream. Did you say it was eStream or Panopto? Uh, Panopto, or? I tried it in, but it, it just didn't recognize Maybe I just don't speak very clearly, but it didn't recognize at least half of the words I was saying. <laughs> okay. That's interesting, though. That's another type of, you know, digital literacy I think staff and students need to be aware of, especially in terms of making content accessible, is that some services may not be as developed, I guess, or there yet. I know that some podcast servers and services, rather, they'll offer auto-transcription. Mm-hmm. Mine, I think, does for extra charge, the one this podcast is on. But there was another one I was using, which was free. It was part of the package. But I do remember very distinctly, because I had to edit the transcript, transcribe everyone's 
pronunciation, either mine or even colleagues who are English or Scottish or whatever else, who transcribe the transcription of and as on the O-N and then a duh. And I'm like, what? what is this? <laughs> so I had to go through, yes. So I had to do control F and just edit all of it out. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it, well, it is good for people to be aware there's different ones because I worry if people try it first on Panopto, they might uh, then just give up completely. So, YouTube is the way to go. Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining today. You're welcome. Thank you.